So the Aborigines in Australia believe that the afterlife will be on a paradise island. Native Americans believe the afterlife we will be riding horses, hunting buffalo. Uh, ancient Egyptians believe that for us to take care of our family members in the afterlife, we need to leave them with resources and maps for the next world. Uh, of course, Mexican culture and Hispanic culture, some of them believe in ofrendas. How many of you have seen the movie Coco? Remember the movie Coco? Coco's a fun little movie by Pixar, very entertaining, good music in it. But take a step back and ask yourself the question, does what Coco teach about the afterlife, is that true? Because they're, you know it's not just a story for some people. They actually believe, some Mexican-Hispanic families, that on, on Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead, we have to bring ofrendas, offerings. And if we don't, our loved ones in the afterlife will fade into nothingness. So the question is, what, what's going on and how should we process that? We are in a series called, uh, So You're Dead, Now What? And we're trying to process what this book has to say about the afterlife. And uh, so it's a four-week series on, on You're Dead, Now What Do We Do? We started last week. How many of you were with us last week? Yeah? You guys remember how we started? You're not going to forget that, are you, right? For those of you who weren't here, we, I wanted to get people's attention. So right after the little entry video, uh, we had Donovan, our youth pastor, and Chris, our discipleship director, and they were all decked out in a suit, and they rolled down center aisle with a casket, okay? Get your attention. We're all going to be there someday. The following day, Monday, uh, right after church, I was driving to Walnut Creek with four teenagers. It was my carpool day to take them to, to high school, and one of them was my daughter, and they were all talking about the casket, what they thought about the casket. They thought I was going to pop out of the casket, right? And I told them what happened during second service last week during second service last week, because many of you didn't know what was going on until the casket got right next to you. You're facing forward, and all, all of a sudden, well, during second service last week, as the casket's going down, one lady saw the casket, looked over, and went, oh, and the S-word came right out. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, right, it was exciting, right? So I was telling the teenagers about that, and one of the, one of the teenagers, his name is uh, Sam Davis, he's in junior high, you know, I told him about someone saying the S word in church. He's like, well, it sounds like Bay Hills. And I was like, what? What does that mean? Right? He goes, you know, we're reaching the community. You guys, ooh and ah, you should see second service. They're like that, right? You just stay with third service. But uh, we are in a four-week series on this topic. Last week, here's the main things we talked about. Main thing we talked about is that death always, every time, is, is sin's fault. It's not God's fault, it's sin's fault why there's death. Second of all, we talked about this idea that when we die, at least from a temporary standpoint, our bodies and our souls, they separate. The third thing we talked about is that every single one of us, no matter who we are, after death, at some point in time, will face judgment, right? If you don't want to use that word, call it an audit. Whatever you want, we all will have to give an account to God for how we lived and what we trusted in, okay? This morning, we are going to be talking about, it, you know, it's a little bit disingenuous for me to talk about the afterlife and not to talk about today's subject, which is easily the most controversial, the most difficult, and the most emotionally charged topic, and that's the doctrine of hell. Some of us had similar experiences if we grew up in church, right? Did any of you grow up in church where pastor preached hell, fire, and brimstone sermons? Remember that? And the pastor would yell, and the pastor would scream, and the pastor would sweat, you know? 
preaching about hell. And it seemed to me that most people got saved more because they were afraid of hell than in love with Jesus, right? Or you ended up going to summer camp. Remember summer camp? I remember that, right? You went to summer camp. It's middle of July. You're swimming. You're riding horses, you know, bow and arrow. You're eating like crazy. You're having a great time. One night they have campfire, right? You're making s'mores, right? And then when you're done with that, one of the leaders gets up and he has a talk on hell. Oh, I remember. He takes, the, he takes the marshmallow. He keeps that marshmallow in the fire extra long. It gets charred. It gets roasted. It falls off. And his conclusion is you can either have that in hell or you can accept Jesus as your Savior. Well, if you mention like that, I'm in. I'm, I'm in. I'll take that, right? And again, I, I, that's not us. That's not my style. That's not what we're going to do. But it, it you know, I, I, I do a lot of reading on the church in America terms of what's happening and how can we get better and we're not trying to be cool but we want to be effective and here's what research tells me research tells me that some of you will choose next week not to come back because you don't like this topic now i don't like that but just so we're clear i i want you to like me but if i have to choose i want god to like me more than i want you to like me and so i i don't i'm not going to get all hot and bothered about this but um, I'm going to do the best that I can to explain it and give you handles. I don't want to be one of those churches where, you know, we're cafeteria Christians. Remember going to the cafeteria? Ooh, that looks good. I'm, I'm going to try that. I don't want that. I'm, right? No, we, we want to do the best that we can to look at everything that is in here and try and process what's it saying, why is it saying it, and here's the key. How, how does it apply to me? Because there's application points based upon what we're going to look at this morning. If you have your study guide, here's what we're going to start by doing. We're going to look at some of the Bible words that are used in reference to hell. There's five words that are used. The first word is the Hebrew word shell. Shell means realm of the dead, right? It's typically a neutral term, realm of the dead. Hades is the Greek equivalent. It means place of the dead. Uh, then you've got the Greek word abyss. You remember the movie, what was it, 20, 30 years ago, The Abyss? It means, well, the definition is bottomless or very deep. Then in Second uh, Peter, there's a word that is used of hell, Tartaros, that literally means to confine or to imprison. It refers to the place of the wicked. But by far the most uh, used phrase and the most popular one in terms of trying to explain this concept is this word Gehenna. What's interesting about it, it, it literally references a place in the south of Jerusalem, the Valley of Hinnom. So I have a picture for you of what the Valley of Hinnom looks like today. So, you know, you see the apartment complexes in the back and such. Where the, the, the paved road is and the cars are, that's the Valley of Hinnom. And the question then becomes, why do biblical authors choose this location to try and explain what hell is? And the best that we can understand is because in their minds, what the imagery that is conjured up by the Valley of Hinnom describes as best as they can what hell represents. So, for example, I have the reference in your study guide. You can look it up on your own. But in Second Chronicles, Valley of Hinnom, right where we're looking, that is the place uh, where human sacrifices were performed to the pagan god Molech. So human sacrifices, uh, they would strap live people to the altar and they would burn them to death. So it was known as a place of yelling and screaming. In, in the days of Jesus, the Valley of Hinnom was the town's garbage uh, dump and sewer system. 
So you could see biblical authors are like, I don't know, I don't, we don't know how to explain it. But the best we can come up with is it's like Valley of Hinnom. This is not where you go for a walk with your girlfriend or walking the dog. It's the place you avoid. And that's the best that we could do to describe Gehenna or hell. This is as good a time as any to help you understand that um, when, when biblical authors are trying to explain this concept, you have to understand that they, they are using figures of speech. Let me give you one simple example. They're not necessarily trying to be literal. So biblical authors say that, that hell or Gehenna is a place where there's extreme darkness, that no light at all. But those same authors also say that in hell there are flames. Well, if you combine those two concepts right away, you should understand that that's figures of speech. Because you can't have a place where there's extreme darkness, but there's also fire. Does that make sense? They're trying to, they're trying to get underneath the meaning to a, more, uh, a deeper understanding of trying to explain what is going on and, and why it matters. As we jump into this subject, I do think it's helpful and important to discuss what this topic does to us. The first is that this topic is very, very emotional to think about for us. And it's emotional because it's personal. It's personal because we all have loved ones and friends that um, have passed or are alive but have not given their lives to Christ. And the minute you start connecting the dots, it's not fun. I had read one author this week, and and this author said, listen, this is what you got to do. You, when you're talking about this subject, you have to separate your emotions and your feelings from your intellect and your, your rationale. And that's what you need to do when topic, doing, dealing with this issue. And the more I read, the more I realized I can't do that. I, maybe you're better. I can't do that. It's very emotional to me, right? Now, I don't want to make a decision based upon my emotions and my feelings, but I, I can't separate those two. Oh, by the way, you think it's emotional for you. Uh, when I read Christian authors and non-Christian authors, it's amazing to me. I pick up this undertow from some people who almost, it, it comes across like they think God gets a kick out of this topic. Like he, he almost enjoys this topic. It, it could, nothing could be further from the truth. You have one verse that I have for you on the screen, Ezekiel chapter 33 where, where, where God is speaking, he says, As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. You see, he can connect the dots as well. And he, is, he doesn't like talking about this subject, doesn't like thinking about this subject. He's not happy about it either. Surely as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But I would much prefer that the wicked change his behavior and live. And then he says, he ends, he says, Turn back. Turn back. I was almost done with my notes. I always bring notes up here just so I don't read them, but I, I have them in case I'm trying to figure out where my place is. And I'm almost normally done by Thursday morning with them, and everything changed Thursday afternoon. And it changed because um, if you know me and you know the way I teach, I like to have stories and I like to have jokes and Keep you, I'm not trying to just goof off with you. I'm trying to keep you engaged and make points. And Thursday afternoon, I took all the stories and jokes out. I just, it's not funny. And I had some good ones, you know. 
I can't joke about what God just doesn't joke about. I just can't do it. So you're going to have to think a little bit harder. Um, I'm going to have to work a little bit harder to try and get through this. But it's, it's a significant and a serious topic. The next reason is that um, this is a difficult topic to fully understand. This won't be the first time I reference this passage, but Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord. And that, here's what this means. Listen, this book has enough in it so that you and I can understand who God is and get a really good understanding. But watch, you're not smart enough and I'm not smart enough to understand everything there is to understand about God. Do you get that? At some point in time, you have to be okay with that. You see, he is an infinite being with supreme intelligence, and I am not. I am not a good enough teacher, and you and I don't have a high enough IQ to be able to process all of this. So at some point in time, you have to go, I, I have some handles, and I don't understand and or like it all, but that's about as far as I can go. The next is that this topic is off-putting and a stumbling block to many. So this is what it sounds like. And while people might not verbalize it, this is what it sounds like. So if the God of the Bible is the one who came up with hell, I don't want anything to do with him. And I get, I get how people can conclude that. But deep breath, step back. Let me just say this. If, you're, if you know or have ever been there, just because you don't like and or understand it doesn't mean it's not true. So you have to be really, really careful with that. Bertrand Russell is an atheist philosopher and writer, and he was quoted as saying this about this topic. He says, there's one very serious defect to my mind in Christ's moral character, and that, and that is that he believed in hell. Now, now, Russell is correct. Not only did Jesus believe in hell, did you know that 13% of what he taught and half of his parables had to do with judgment, hell, or the wrath of God? The, the conclusion that Russell arrived at was this. And, and see, because I hear this. No, I'm, I'm into loving Jesus. I'm into the compassionate God. I'm, in, I'm into mercy. But, you know, all this judgment and hell... I, I'm not into, I, I don't really believe any of that. I just, be, I believe this. And here's what Russell concluded, an atheist. He says, what, what you don't understand is that if you reject the doctrine of hell without realizing you're also rejecting the doctrine of Jesus because they're so intertwined, you can't separate one from the other. Most of what we know about hell comes from the teaching of Jesus. That's the challenge it's not just atheists that, that spout off about being uncomfortable about this topic. C.S. Lewis is easily one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our day. And he is quoted as saying this. He says, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than the doctrine of hell. So what, what C.S. Lewis says is, you know, if it's me, when, when you get to those verses in here, that talk about hell, I'm just going to take a black marker or, or rip the page out. That's what I would like to do, says C.S. Lewis. But, he adds, you know what he goes on to say? I would prefer for the doctrine of hell not to be here. But, 
It's here. So now I have to process it. Now I have to assimilate it. Now I have to try and digest what it's about and why it matters to me. The last thing is that it's emotional and it's difficult to understand. It's off-putting, but why are we talking about it? We're talking about it is because it's so important for you to process and for you to apply this. Everything in this book is given for a reason, including this topic. Everything. We need to make sense of it and try and apply it to our lives. I've said it last week, and I'm going to say it next week and the week after. It's a four-week series. Let me show you this next slide. The, the, The idea of why we're covering is that whatever you believe about the afterlife, whatever you believe about eternity, whatever you believe about death is going to affect how you live your life. That's why I'm talking about it, right? Because honestly, I would have preferred to call in sick this morning. Just pick something nice and fun to talk about because this is not fun. The best I know how to cover this subject is you'll notice on the back side of your study guide, there's no blanks other than right at the end. I'm going to talk about what, what are the top seven, eight questions that people ask about this topic I'm going to cover a lot of verses. I'm not going to have enough time for each of them. I'll be in the back if you want to ask me a follow-up question. I can't promise you I'll have an answer, um, but we're just going to try and plow through um, just questions about this topic. Question number one, what's the purpose of hell? Why did God create it? Well, one of the interesting things is the first two verses I have for you, uh, notice the original intent of hell. Matthew 24, 41, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devils and his angels. 2 Peter 2, 4. If God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but he sent them to hell, the original goal and purpose of hell was never for humans to be there, ever. The original purpose was for Satan and his fallen angels. Now, that at least gives me perspective. It's just perspective. The next verse begins to help me understand why some humans will be there. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 9 say this. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. God is just. So hey, I'm into his love. I'm into his compassion. I'm into his mercy. But you can't have those character qualities with also, also having the character of justice. You can't have that. And you go, well, well, why can't we just skip that one? Well, you know, some people want that. You talk to villages in West Africa that have been devastated because guerrilla forces come in, kill the men, rape the women, and take the kids and send them in to be child soldiers. You ask those people if they want justice. See, justice is a significant part of what we call the world. All this is evidence that God... Judgment is right. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who cause trouble. He, he will punish those who do not know God and did not obey God. You see, ultimately, the purpose of hell is to show that God's universe is fair. God keeps records, and he will ultimately render judgment. His holiness and his character demands payment. Now, let me help you understand this. There's a little catch. Either you pay or Jesus pays, but someone pays. Yeah, but 
Dave, couldn't, couldn't he just forgive at the end? Couldn't he do what businesses do? They just, you know, if they, if they have a loss, they just write it off. Like a big, like a, a whiteboard, you know? He just, yeah, they look at all their sin. I'm just going to, yeah, take it all out. Could he have done that? Well, he could, but you haven't wrestled with what that implies then. Think about that. If at the end he's just going to do this for all the people that didn't get saved, question, why Jesus? Why the fuss of the cross? Why make him go through all that suffering if in the end he could just do this? So you, you back yourself into a theological corner the minute you just go, well, can't he just kind of forgive everybody? Well, okay, I got it. I mean, so that I understand, but it's still, next question, God, God he, boy, I don't know. He seems really mean, seems unfair, right? I mean, it seems like cosmic overkill, like God's a little heavy-handed. You, you, you don't get saved, and you get a mandatory sentence that makes a place like Leavenworth look like Disneyland. Because of this, because some people think that God can't be mean and unfair, and I would agree. Um, Some people have come up with a doctrine called the doctrine of annihilationism. Have you ever heard of that? Annihilationism. This This is a doctrine that teaches that, listen, we don't want people to be punished in hell. So what we're going to come up with as a, as, a, as, a, as a different doctrine to compete with the doctrine of hell is this. Instead of people being in hell, when they die, they're just going to stop existing. That's annihilationism. Now, the problem with that, and again, I have no problem talking to you guys about anything, uh, but every once in a while, one of you will come up to me and say, you, well, you know what I think? And you'll tell me what you think. Now, I don't do it to you, but you know what I, what I want to do? Show me. No, I wish. I have all kinds of doctrines. The problem is they're just coming from inside my head. Or from Hollywood. Show me. See, I don't trust myself to come up with my own doctrines about the world and eternity. I'm going to come up with that on my own. You want to talk fairness? Here we go. You want to talk? Here we go. You want to be in heaven? Pay the entry fee. That's fairness. You pay the entry fee. Where do you get off thinking God owes you? Where did you come up with that? Why, why does Jesus have to pay your entry fee? Why does he have to pay your sin speeding ticket? Well, I can't afford the entry fee. Now you're beginning to understand what the word grace means. That's the whole point. The point is, I, I, I can't pay my entry fee. Fairness is we all get banished. That's fairness. So you, you got to be careful going down this road because you minimize genuinely what, what the grace of God is. So I'm going to tell you, I've had a couple people say, well, what's the most important thing on this topic? It's what I'm going to cover right now. Theologians, when they talk about this issue, they stay right here. Watch. John chapter 3, verse 17. We love John 3.16. I love me some John 3.16. 17 is just as important or more. Do you realize God didn't send his son in the world to condemn the world? 
He sent him to save the world. And now, here it comes. Here it comes. First John. He keeps talking about the subject. Do you realize that Jesus, God, is pure? Do you realize that all sin is contrary to God? Do you realize there is no sin in Jesus? And yet anyone who keeps on sinning, you just don't get it. You don't understand. So here's what philosophers and theologians that are a lot smarter than I am say. Anybody, someone starts going, well, this isn't fair. This isn't right. Seems a little heavy-handed. Why God can't be nicer? Anytime you start going in this direction, all of those philosophers and theologians will conclude this person does not really understand the doctrine of sin, and the character of holiness. You don't get it. You don't understand how awful sin really is in comparison to how holy God really is. Because if you got it, you would never talk about God being unfair. Ever. Craig Groeschel is a pastor in Oklahoma. He's written a lot of books, and this is how he says it. Why does hell exist? Why would a loving God create a place like hell in the first place? When we ask this, what it reveals is a flaw in our thinking or our theology. It shows that we do not truly understand the holiness of God and the horrors of sin. Well, next question, isn't hell overkill? I mean, isn't it overkill? I mean, if I sin, if I'm doing something that I shouldn't do for, I don't know, five years, Heck, if I do something that's sinful for my whole life, 85 years, it seems like a little much that I sinned for 85 years, but now I got to pay for it for all eternity. Seems like it doesn't match. Seems like a little overkill. Well, let me help you process it a little bit. First of all, the degree to which a person experiences consequence is never based upon how long it took you to commit the act. Let me help you understand that. So if if someone kills or murders someone, takes a gun, shoots them dead, how long did that take? Boom, 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 five seconds. Certainly we're not suggesting that because it only took me five seconds to commit that act, that they only have to have a consequence or punishment for five seconds. See, we understand that the punishment isn't based upon how long it took you to commit something. It's based upon the severity of what you did. And now we're right back at the last point, the severity of your sin in the face of a God that is perfectly pure and holy. Does that make sense? Second of all, and this, this one is so interesting. This is what I, I spent way too much time reading because I, I, had, I hadn't dug it deep as much as I had before, but some philosophers and theologians, as they're breaking down scripture, ask this question. What makes you think that people stop sinning after they die? Where'd you come up with that? Because it's not taught here. Oh no, it's taught that in heaven we don't sin. But what makes you think that people who didn't give their life to Christ Stop sinning. There's an interesting story in Luke chapter 16. 
where someone finds themselves in hell and they cry out for mercy, right? I'm thirsty, basically, is what they say. Cry out for mercy. And then they say, can you go tell my brothers and my family what's in the afterlife? I don't, you know, don't want them to suffer. And here's the questions that commentators ask. Why didn't the person in hell say, my bad, can I have a second chance? I don't, you know what, I changed my mind. Why didn't they do that? You know why some people speculate? They're not ready to submit to God. They still are in rebellion to God. Have you ever found yourself in the middle of an argument with someone and in the middle of the argument you realize you're wrong and you keep arguing anyway? (laughs) Sounds like that happens to you, right? Why do we do that? Have you ever wondered why we do that? Because there's a rebellious streak in us that won't back down, not even with God. D.A. Carson is considered to be probably one of the premier New Testament scholars in the world. I had two classes with him in Chicago at the Divinity School at Trinity, and I felt like I was a kindergartner. I mean, he's that smart. And D.A. Carson, speaking about this topic, says the following. He says, hell is not filled with people who have already repented. Only God isn't gentle or good enough to let them out. It's filled with people who for all eternity still want to be at the center of their own universe. Hmm. Next question, will hell be the same for everyone? This is an easy one, and the answer is absolutely not. Just like heaven is different for everyone, because there are various rewards, um, we're, we're pretty sure that hell, likewise, is not the same for everyone. It, it, it's what, what is, is talked about as God's justice being proportional. So let's try and find the, the worst person you can think of in the world ever, Adolf Hitler. What, what his punishment looks like is vastly different than the neighbor who lives down the street who is, you know, you know, he, he, you know he's not the greatest guy, but he wasn't Hitler. Their, their lives are completely different. So justice is proportional to them, right? Again, it, it, it's hard to understand and process, but even, even Jesus says... Speaking of this, in, Ro- in Matthew chapter 11, notice what he says. He's speaking to different towns. It's like he was speaking to San Pablo, Pinole, and Hercules. He's using different towns in that region. He says this, Woe to you, Chorazim. Woe to you, Bethsaida. In other words, you guys are in deep trouble. Woe to you, Chorazim. Woe to you, Bethsaida. I tell you, it will be more bearable or easier for Tyra and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Now, he's not letting the towns of Tyra and Sidon off the hook. He's just saying, if you're from Chorazin and Bethsaida, what you did was even worse. Does that make sense? Anyone recognize that picture on the screen? There was one person first service, no one second service. Anyone recognize it? You will recognize it the minute I tell you because you've heard the phrase. Have you ever heard of Dante's Inferno? That's it. You say, what is Dante's Inferno? Dante was an author, and he wrote a book called The Divine Comedy. And he writes uh, a section called Dante's Inferno. Well, he gives basically a tour of hell and explains what hell is and what it isn't. And Dante explained hell as nine concentric circles, and the closer you got to the middle, the worse it was. You see what looks kind of like a cake in the background? That's his picture of hell. On the outside, you're still in hell, but the closer you get to the middle and the closer you get to the top, the worse it gets. 
right? Now, he got in really hot water because he illustrated this in other parts. And at the center of hell, he put a picture of the Pope. So Dante and the Roman Catholic Church were not buddies. They were not friends on Facebook, okay? Now, I don't, I don't agree with everything he says, but there's one thing I do agree with. I, I don't know whether there's nine levels or 12 levels. or I, I don't know how this works. But it's clear that there's proportional justice in hell. Everyone doesn't get the same consequence because everyone's life was different. So it's interesting to process that and think about it. What actually happens in hell? Next question. What happens in hell? What, what, what happens and doesn't happen? Well, in case you're wondering, you're not going to be hanging out with your college buddies, playing poker, smoking cigars, and listening to ACDC, if that's what you think is going to happen. Matthew chapter 13 uses a phrase that is used elsewhere when it refers to hell, and it says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Gnashing of teeth. What is gnashing of teeth? Gnashing of teeth is an, is an expression of supreme remorse. So this afternoon, the Super Bowl's on, and let's say a quarterback throws an interception, and as they're walking back to the sideline, they're gnashing their teeth. Arr. They're expressing supreme remorse. I shouldn't have thrown it. The safety was right there. I should have just held on and take the sack. Supreme remorse. Or, remember when you were a student, you're taking a test. Oh, I don't know if the answer is A or C or A or C. I'm going to put A. And then you get out, you look at your backpack, you look at your notes. Ah, wrong answer. Supreme remorse. Right? You're on the highway. You think you can cut in between two cars. You cut in between two cars. You end up clipping another one, and there's an accident. Right? When you're there with the cops, supreme remorse. And there will be people in heaven that express supreme remorse. I should have known better. Down deep, I knew. I knew better. In my opinion, 2 Thessalonians 1.9 is, for me, one of the most helpful verses in terms of helping me process and understand what actually happens in hell and doesn't happen. They will be punished with everlasting destruction. Oh, I get that. I'm not just sure what that looks like or sounds like. Well, here it says, and will be shut out from the presence of God. So listen to me very carefully because this will carry over into next week. This is eternity. You ready? This is it. Eternity is nothing more than God giving you an expanded capacity to experience what you sought after on earth. Let me say it again. Eternity is an expanded capacity to experience what you sought after here on earth. So here's how it works. At some point in time, God will say to someone, you know, I've noticed you don't want me in your life. I've noticed that for 88 years, every time I tried to nudge close to you, you kept me at at an arm distance away. I realized that every time my son whispered in your ear and every time my Holy Spirit nudged your heart, you, every single time you, took, you told him to take a hike. I get it. You don't want me in your life. And so you know what? I'm not going to twist your arm. I'm going to give you what you want. You don't want me in your life? I'll, ba- I'll back away. No, you win. You don't want me? I got it. No, I heard you loud and clear. You win. You, you can have life without me. That's hell. 
enabled to experience the presence of God. The next one is very emotional but easy to answer. Well, what about babies that die? Right? If you've ever experienced that or have someone close that have experienced that, that's hard. So you have the competing ideas, book of Psalms, we are born in our sin. That's serious. And yet the basic understanding that an infant, they, I, I can't even say the word Jesus. I don't have a comprehension of that word. And so the understanding and, and the way we're, theologians have processed this is, so you have over here an infant that can't even process Jesus, God, and sin. They, you know, and then way over on the other side of this stage, you have an adult that certainly can. And so the idea is, is that the, the more an infant becomes a toddler and then they head in over into preschool and then they're in first grade, and the more they grow up, they get to a point in time where they can process. Have you ever heard the term age of accountability? That's that. That's Bible teachers and scholars trying to say that at some point in time, that individual is accountable to God. So interestingly enough, pretty much all theologians say there will not be babies, infants, and children in hell. That's what is, is said. The example in Scripture comes from 2 Samuel 12. David, after his son dies, and I should have said his infant son, because that's what we're talking about. He says this, I will go to him, my, my infant that died, he will not return to me. This idea that I will see him in heaven. Okay, So that's normally a very simple answer. The last one is the one everyone loves to talk about, and they think they, they trip Christians up with this. Well, what if someone's never heard about Jesus? What if someone's never heard? Well, three or four handles. Number one, Deuteronomy 29, 29. I don't know. And at some point in time, you're going to have to be okay with the pastor that says every once in a while, I don't know. Every once in a while, you're going to have to be okay saying to your coworker, your family member, I, I don't really completely know. I don't know. However, we have some handles in Romans chapter 2. This idea that Paul says, you know, some people won't be, quote, condemned because of what they thought of Jesus or the gospel message. They will be condemned for violating their own internal standards of right and wrong over and over and over and over again. We're going to cover it in our apologetics discipleship class in three weeks. It's this idea when it comes to truth. Where do you get truth from? Where does it come from? Have you noticed that every culture in the world, every nation in the world, they all agree that murder is wrong. They all agree that rape is wrong. They all agree that breaking into your neighbor's house and stealing their flat screen is wrong. And the question is, why? They didn't read a book. Why, why does everybody agree on that? Everybody agrees on that because we have been infused with the standard of right and wrong into our conscience, into our hearts by God. You don't have to read a book to have some basic understanding of right and wrong. That's the point. And for that person that's in the middle of the jungle in Amazon and has never read a Bible and has never heard of Jesus, but do they have an internal standard of right and wrong? They do. They do. Now, the next verse, Jeremiah 29, God says this, if you seek me, by the way, why should we seek God? You know what Paul says in Romans? Just look up to the sky. Just look around. Just the world should help you understand and conclude there's got to be a God. Makes me kind of chuckle when people talk about atheists because there's no one, there's no, none of them left out there. 
You go, what do you mean? Less than 2% of the world's population are actually atheists. Call them agnostic, but 98 plus percent of the world believes in a higher being. That's not under question anymore. The question is, which one is it? That I'm more than happy to dialogue with you. But if there's a God out there, you know what he says? Seek me and I'll reveal myself to you. But in the end, here's where I rest, Isaiah 30. You know what? I can't figure it out, so I'm going to let God figure it out. He's good, he's compassionate, and he's just. And I'm not sure I can give you an answer about the guy in the middle of the Amazon that's never heard of Jesus. But let me end by asking you this. This morning isn't about the guy in the middle of the Amazon that's never heard about Jesus. It's about you. And you have heard about Jesus. And you have heard the gospel story. I'm going to have the band come up. And let me end by saying this to you. You do realize just because you don't like something doesn't mean it's not true. Just because you don't agree with something doesn't mean it's not true. Just because you don't fully understand something doesn't mean it's not true. Let, let me ask it this way. and let me, it, It's going to sound weird, but this is quite deep f- philosophy when you actually get to it. Do you think the creator of the universe has a right to make any rule he wants, yes or no? I mean, I think that's why God, what God gets to do. If he invents the world, he gets to make any rule he wants, okay? Stay with me. So if God decided, if it was in every book of the Bible, if God decided to make this rule, watch, here we come. You are not allowed to eat strawberries. If you do, you're sinning against me. Question, would he be allowed to make that rule? It's weird. I like strawberries, but okay. Why? I don't have a clue. He, he doesn't like pits or something. I don't know. Okay, now watch. Stay with me. So if you're over here and there's a rule or there's a doctrine that you don't understand, just like you don't understand why God's against strawberries, in the end, you have to rest with the idea because he's creator, he gets to make the rules. He gets to make, you think, He's God and you're not. Now, if you're intellectually honest, the more you dig into scripture, you can at least come up with some handles. I'm not saying you don't struggle with this doctrine. But do not play the game of throwing God out of your life because there's something you don't like. That's dangerous. That's dangerous. So what do you do with this? There's three application points I want to encourage you to consider. Number one is I want to encourage you to be thankful for Christ. I, I don't think some of you get it yet. You don't deserve heaven. You don't, you're not good enough. You don't deserve it. And until you get that, you won't understand what grace means. 
in a couple moments, we're going to have communion. And that little wafer piece of bread and that cup represents what Jesus did on the cross for you. You know what I want you to do today when you get it? Thank you, God. I realize I don't deserve it. Thank you. That's all I can say. Thank you. I want to encourage some of you to lead and point other people's to Christ. I still remember I was in a class in school. We were talking about witnessing and evangelism, and someone asked my professor, why do you think it is the average Christian doesn't share their faith that much? I'll never forget his answer. He says, you know what I think? He says, the average Christian in America doesn't share their faith because they really don't believe or understand the doctrine of hell. Because if they did, everything would change. You know what I can't understand? Is why you aren't trying harder. I don't know what else to say. This isn't games. And I'm not going to raise my voice. But it's personal to me. It should be to you. I can't talk about this without also giving you the last option, which to personally accept Christ. I'm not going to pray for you this morning. You could do it on your own. I believe I'm sinful. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Come into my life. That's it. And I don't, I don't want you to do this be, just because you don't want to go to hell. Certainly there's a respectful, mature response to hell. But it has to be just as much because you believe and trust in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. I just want us all right now, just take a deep breath. Just take a deep breath. Take a step back. What are you going to do with what you learned today? Why did God want you here? Just take a moment, process that. If your decision today is to accept Christ, now is your time. Heavenly Father, I just, these are not the fun parts of Scripture to me. It's not necessarily my most enjoyable Sunday. I, we are trying to do the best we can to process everything you gave us and understand what and why it matters. And I hope that we've honored you not only with content, but also with the emotion behind this topic. I pray that it would challenge us. pray that it would convict us. Not to scare people, not to yell at people, but to be motivated because the cross of Christ matters. And my sin matters. And as we transition into time of communion, we just want to take a moment and say thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name.